You are listening to episode 208 of This is Type 1. Today, we're talking about something called the law of small numbers. So the first question right off the bat then is, what is the law of small numbers? And as far as I know, the first introduction of this to the diabetes community was through Dr. Richard Bernstein, who wrote a book called The Diabetes Solution. And that book has been a big help to a lot of diabetics out there who want to normalize their blood sugars, which is basically the goal that Dr. Bernstein set out to reach when he published that book. So if you're familiar at all with statistics, and I hope none of you are because statistics, as my mother says, is sadistics, the law of small numbers in this context is not the logical fallacy about small sample sizes in scientific studies. That is a completely different thing, completely different law of small numbers than the one we're talking about now. This law of small numbers is about how big inputs make big mistakes and small inputs make small mistakes. The key here that Dr. Bernstein goes into is to eat foods that will affect your blood sugar in a very small, very slow way because small inputs equal small mistakes. So this law is based on three main issues that happen when we take external or exogenous insulin. So that's through uh, multiple daily injection, insulin pump, uh, things like that. One of the main issues is estimating carbs, which surprisingly or not surprisingly, depending on how you look at it, nutrition labels have a variance of 20%. So if you have a bowl of pasta or something that says 84 grams on the serving size on the label as your carb count, that could be 20% off in either direction, which impacts how we calculate our insulin dosage and how that, that carbohydrate affects us down the line. The second issue is insulin absorption is not consistent. And this can be related to our site location. So where it is on the body, there might be different areas of the body that make it harder to absorb than others. It can also be the age of the site. How long has it been there? The age of the insulin in the insulin pump or the vial. Your exercise regimen. If you've been sick, a bunch of other different factors that can go into that. But also, if you read Dr. Bernstein's book, he talks about how when we're injecting external insulin we are basically introducing a foreign substance to the body and our immune systems will respond in kind. So kind of like how they went and destroyed all of our beta cells, they're looking at this new packet of insulin that's been injected as kind of an intruder. So the immune system will go and attack some of that insulin, which means not all of the insulin that we inject gets absorbed. So there's that problem. And then the third main issue is that the stuff that we take via insulin pump or MDI, so that's our Novolog, our Humalog, our uh, Lantus, Bisagler, all of the, the different artificial types of insulins that we've been used to for the last 20, 30, 40, however long years, that has different timing than the insulin that is naturally produced by the body. So all of these things are issues when we're taking external insulin and we're eating carbs that on the nutrition labels have a 20% variance in what is allowed to be on there. So when we have smaller numbers, so small, small carb count, small insulin dose, all of those things, we have a small margin of error. Small mistakes in those things, so small mistakes in your carb count, small mistakes in your insulin dose, will equal small corrections, which means less time out of range. On the other hand, if we have big mistakes, so lots of carbs, lots of insulin, and all of those things, that means we have to make big corrections, and that can make big variations in our blood sugars, 
which results in higher A1C and a lower time and range. And on top of all of this, that compounding variability between the carb estimates, the insulin absorption effectiveness, and your meter reading, so what shows up on your blood glucose meter, because that also has a 20% variance. And if you have a sensor, which has a lag, then you have that to account for because sensors like Dexcom, the number that you see on your on your receiver is actually five minutes ago, five to 15 minutes ago. So there's a lag on the reading. Like all of this combined can land us in a huge roller coaster situation, especially if you're having large amounts of carbs at each meal. So the bottom line for the law of small numbers is that small inputs are predictable. Large inputs are chaotic. If we have small inputs, we have room for error. But if they're large inputs, we have little to no room for error, and that can cause lots of problems for us. I agree with this. Also, if you ever go on like low carb, like, I don't know, low carb based eating for a couple of days, you'll notice that your blood sugars will start to plummet because there's not as many things that your body has to compensate for, not as much insulin you need to take, not as much exercise you might need to get to lower your blood sugars. In turn, that causes more sensitivity to low blood sugar snacks. So like when you go low, your blood sugar goes up faster. And when you go high, your blood sugar comes right back down instead of hovering for a couple of hours. Or this is a really good example. When your blood sugar meter, if you wear like a CGM and it's reading like, hey, extreme high coming up, extreme, extremely high blood sugar, you either... One, know what it's from, and you know that it's from carbs that I ate a while ago from because I had a little bit extra than my usual amount. Or the other scenario is you don't know where it's coming from, and you're like, okay, I got to figure out what's going on, stop everything, take care of this, and really figure it out. But then you're stuck there because your body is used to being at that point. So smaller carbs equals for a more drastic change with blood sugar dependent on carbs and insulin. Bigger carbs, less drastic. That's also just another way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. When I went to low carb over the course of the first few months that I was on it, I cut my insulin dose in half, which was insane. (laughs) So I went from being uh, prescribed 50 units a day to taking, I think like 25, 25 to 30 units a day was my total daily dose on my insulin pump. And that happened because I drastically reduced the number of carbs I was eating, which drastically reduced how many correction units I needed. Plus my basal rate went down because of what you just said with the increased sensitivity. So it all works together. So I'm going to read a quote from a blog called A Sweet Life. In a study titled Accuracy of Repeated Meal Carbohydrate Content Estimation by Persons with Type 1 Diabetes Using Continuous Subcutaneous Insulin Infusion, which is a huge long title, the author, Dr. Guido Freckman, showed that most diabetics had about 68% accuracy in carb counting. And with extensive training in carbohydrate counting, the best results achieved were 83% accurate. The most inaccurate, excuse me, results were achieved when the carbohydrate values were higher. As it turns out, it's quite common for people with diabetes to underestimate carbohydrate content out of fear of hypos, end quote. I have like, when I first saw this, this statistic, the 68% versus 83%, I'm like, oh yeah, (laughs) 
Because you can look at a cookie, think it's 20, 20 grams of carb. And then if you didn't know where it was made or whatever, then it could be as high as 40 carbs or as low as 10. And then you're just <laughs> completely messed up. Oh, yeah. No, you can look at something and be like, oh, yeah, that's totally a cup something. And then it totally and until doesn't. until you actually it's, measure yeah, it, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's so not. Although I will say, underestimating carbs so you avoid hypos, that can be good sometimes, especially when you're going to like sports events and then your blood sugar just plummets in the middle of your practice and you're like, oh, I have to go sit down for the rest. Right. So sometimes there's reasons for that. I just want to say that. But yeah, this is huge. Like even if the label says like, as you said earlier, like labels are so misleading. Like they can be off. They're loud. Okay. Can we just talk about that? The fact that they're allowed yeah, to be yeah, they are 20%, percent. That's huge. That's like going from a hundred say you're eating like a hundred carbs in a day you're missing 20 carbs at least so yeah. no wonder our blood sugars go high after food just oh i mean it's so angering <laughs> that that could launch us onto a completely different unrelated but semi-related tangent about how the fact that our glucose meters that have been around for like 40 years have a margin of error of 20 percent yeah. And our yeah. sensors have a margin of error of 20%. Like, where did the 20% come from? Because that is a huge number. Yeah. And all of this stuff has to go through the FDA, has to be approved by how many insurance companies, how many doctors have to approve this. Like, who said that 20% was reasonable? 5% is reasonable to, in today's world. 0% tomorrow's. So you don't have to go keto or drastically limit the number of carbs to follow the law of small numbers. But it does mean that you need to change some habits around your food, your insulin, your timing. And as always, it just comes down to experimentation. I think the definition of low carb is going to vary between type 1 diabetics. And this is not a, like, you have to go have low carb. But I'm encouraging people to just go experiment to find out what works for you. Because if you have a single meal a day that is a burrito or something and the rest of your food is low carb, then that could be considered low carb. You just have to figure out how to bolus for the burrito. Yeah. Or just redefine like what a low number is to you. Cause like a low number in exercising could be like an hour, hour and a half. And that could be like a low exercise day, but your blood sugars are fine because of that. But you also ate like 60 carbs and you're totally fine. You know? So it's, it just, you have to redefine like what a low number is to you basically. And then kind of adjust that too to your lifestyle. So like, if you're gonna have like 60 carb meals a day, which is totally fine. And like have multiple of them, like, yeah, do it, go off. But at the same time, redefine what a low number is. Because if that's a low number for you for carbs, then, okay, so what's my low number for exercise? What's my low, low number for water intake to help keep my blood sugar down throughout the day? But also, if you're used to having large uh, numbers of carbs at meals, you don't have to immediately go to 20 carbs a meal. You can increment down and experiment as you're going. What the ADA has pre in the past recommended as the number of carbs per meal, at one point, I think it was 150 carbs per meal, which is huge for anybody, including type 1 diabetics especially. And so if you're used to following that, cut it down to 100, cut it down to 75, and like increment it down so you can figure out the right bolusing strategy or the right injection strategy and timing and all of that kind of stuff that we've been talking about. The other reason why the law of small numbers is important is because rage bolusing and eating the kitchen when we're low, those both work against us. 
those are big changes and they cause big results. And I mean, I have rage bolused. I've stacked insulin. I have eaten the kitchen. I have overcorrected. I've done all of those things. And I see the results in big crashes, big spikes. It's not fun, but sometimes I go into those things knowing ahead of time what I'm going to experience. And I decide ahead of time that I'm going to be okay with it and not be mad at myself. But in the future, we want to remember that those types of behaviors can drive those roller coasters that we don't like on our CGM graphs. So a few ways that the law of small numbers can help you. You have probably figured out a few of these on your own, but it can include lowering your A1C, improving your time and range, reducing your stress levels, which is always important. It can improve how you feel overall, and it can improve your overall blood sugars because... And that's important because your blood sugars affect basically every other aspect of your health. So it's important to just keep those in mind and uh, shoot for a nice in-range graph on the chart, even though it's never going to be 100% perfect. All of that included, it can also improve your energy levels. It can improve how much you go out and exercise. It can go, it can improve how your ability to concentrate because you're not having to like focus on diabetes all the time. It can also lower your decision-making energy. Well, we're, we were talking about this a couple of episodes ago. We were like, decision, decision fatigue. fatigue. Yep, That is what I think you have. It'll take decision to fatigue out of it if you want to start meal prepping. So then one, you know all of your carbs. Two, when and where you're eating it. And then it also helps with food security and you don't have to worry about like, oh, am I going to go to the dining hall? And what's there, what's not? So yeah. Yeah. So some examples of how the law of small numbers has worked in my life. Well, Jesse actually mentioned this earlier. It's changing how many carbs I need as a low snack. So the ADA guideline is 15 grams of carb every 15 minutes, right? Like you take, you have 15 grams, you wait 15 minutes, you check your blood sugar again. If you're still below 70 or 75 or whatever, have another 15 carbs. And if you have any experience at all with blood, with blood sugars and type 1 diabetes, that will spike you right up especially if you're really carb sensitive like I am. So for me, 15 grams of carb will 100% skyrocket my blood sugar. And that will cause my tandem insulin pump to give an autocorrect. So it'll actually autocorrect my, my, it'll give an autocorrect of insulin for that spike it sees, even though I have in the past suspended my pump. So it doesn't give me that autocorrect and it levels off itself. So my tandem is like so overreactive for these spikes from low snacks that I have to reduce how much I have for a low snack. So I have like a half roll of Smarties. That's three carbs. Sometimes I might do a full roll depending on how low my blood sugar is because three might not bring it up fast enough. But it really comes down to figuring out what low snack works best for you and experimenting with it again. In the past, I have used Honey 6. And when I was in that experimentation phase, I found that it made a tiny little bump on the graph of my CGM and then it kept going back down. And so when I switched to Smarties, I noticed it gave it a lot more of a bump, not as much as the, actually more than the honey sticks, but it didn't come back down. So it was figuring that out through experimentation. Before I started low carb, my low snacks were a whole packet of fruit snacks or an entire can of apple juice, like the treetop cans of apple juice, which were amazing, but they were all between 18 and 20 grams of carb. And so if I chug a 20 gram carb apple juice can, and I didn't need 20 grams, I needed like three, of course I'm going to skyrocket. So it's just going through that process of experimenting, finding out what works best for you, trying different low snacks, taking the data. So you have something concrete to look back on and say, yes, 
I'm going to buy a 40 pound box of Smarties. Yes, I did that instead of like a a Costco size thing of, of fruit snacks. The other thing that I've already mentioned is the stacking of insulin and the rage bolusing. So yes, I have done that and not doing that will result in a better CGM graph, just saying. The other thing that I was thinking about here was if you have high basal rates and maybe you haven't exercised in a while, if you have high basal rates and then you forget to turn on exercise mode, which will make it so that your CGM will stay higher, your blood sugar will stay a little bit higher during that exercise period. Or if you forget to suspend before and during exercise, then you might experience your blood sugar tanking because you still have that high basal rate going. So that that can be considered like a high variable there, whereas the exercise mode or the suspension will actually lower your input so that your output is lower as well. Yeah, no, I I love those treetop apple juices. Those are <laughs> those. Oh my god, I had to have one last night because my blood sugar like just wasn't coming up, but. Yeah, I completely agree. Using like once you become so carb sensitive, you don't need a ton to get your blood sugar up unless something's going weird. Like it happens. It happens to all of us where your blood sugar wants to stay low sometimes and then you get annoyed and then you eat 9 million things of fruit snacks and then your blood sugar is fine, which is what happened last night, which is crazy. But anyways, that's another tangent. Yeah. So making sure that you have low snacks and then experimenting with what low snacks work. Because generally when people are diagnosed with diabetes, they get told, hey, 15 to 20 carbs is absolutely what you have to take. Or at least this was my experience is absolutely what you have to take to get your blood sugar back up. Well, in reality, you might not actually need that. So if you're newly diagnosed and you're still in that honeymoon phase where you've got like your pancreas is still secreting insulin and you're doing pretty good. It might only take five or 10 carbs to get your blood sugar up. And then if you maintain a lower carb diet or lower carb meal protocol, you can probably keep that five to 10 carb low snack bump. So you don't have to take on more insulin later, more calories throughout your day. If you want to try and lose weight, not more carbs and you don't get like you're bouncing back and forth between high and low headaches at the end of the day. I think when we go low carb, we automatically increase our insulin sensitivity and people who are newly diagnosed, especially if it's caught early and they keep that, they get that honeymoon phase longer or they get um, triplizumab, which extends like basically prevents the onset of type one for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. I think that lets you keep that higher uh, sensitivity to both longer. So yeah, yeah, you could just be like, I'm going to have three grams of carb and fix that low right away. Right. Instead (laughs) of having to go through how many years have you had diabetes to get to this point where you could only have three carbs to fix your blood sugars, you know? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, and a sneak peek for everybody. This year, I've had type 1 for 28 years. Jesse has had it for 12. So combined, we have 40 years of experience with type 1 diabetes. Just saying. All right, that is it for this episode. And we wanted to ask you a question now. How can you use the law of small numbers in your type 1 diabetes life? Go ahead and think about the types of experiments you can run. Maybe listen to our past episode on the scientific method or our episode with uh, Jason Robinson about experimentation and his life being a nomad. And let us know how it goes on Instagram or in the Hapted Pancreas Club. 
Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.